in 2009 in a barracks, uh, my room at the Citadel, I read, I had begun reading out of a New Testament, the first gospel, the gospel of Matthew. And when I came to Matthew 6, where Christ introduces the Lord's prayer to his disciples, I said, I'm on board. I want to be a disciple. But I didn't know how to pray. So I said, I will pray for the first time and I will pray using the Lord's Prayer. And I did. So the Lord's Prayer came a prayer of salvation for me. And the great note and assurance of salvation contained in the Lord's Prayer comes in verse 12 where we ask the Lord to forgive us our debts. But that prayer has a condition upon it. It's got a part two, as it were, where we pray first, forgive us our debts. Lord, my debt is great to you. Oh, my King, if you can, if it's within your power, if it's within your grace and your mercy, please extend pardon and forgiveness of my debts. But part two is to continue in prayer and to pray, and Lord, forgive my debtors. So one is to pray for the personal forgiveness of debt, and another one is to personally pray, pray that we will forgive others' debts. We are equally dependent upon God to experience the forgiveness of sin and the payment of our debt as we are to show forgiveness to others. We cannot forgive others. You won't forgive others based in your own natural innate state. It requires the same power and grace of God at work in your life to extend pardon and the payment of debts to your debtors. When I got up off my knees praying, and the reason I got on my knees incidentally was there was a stick figure in the good news for modern man that I was reading uh, the Gospel of Matthew. And so I was so, um, I did not grow up in a Christian home, so I was so far from Christianity and, and understanding the ways of God with men that I needed an illustrated Bible. So it showed a, a, a stick figure kneeling beside a cot. And I said, hey, my hair looks like a stick figure. I got a cot, so when you pray, you kneel. I continued to read and, and look in Matthew 6. And I was struck early on with an ability to do exegesis. Anyone who prepares to teach or preach takes God's Word, takes the Bible, and he looks and he looks for patterns. And he looks and he sees that there's integrity there, but 
not only am I focusing on a word such as forgive, but how does that word relate to the sentence that goes before and the sentence that goes after? How does it relate to the chapter? How does it relate to the whole book as a whole? How does it relate to the New Testament? How does the New Testament relate all the way back to Genesis and the Old Testament? So I did exegesis right off the bat. I must have had some crazy, you know, in, in some insane spiritual gift that was already marking me out day one of my salvation to be a preacher. Because I was given the ability to do exegesis. Let's see if you have that same ability. Verse 14 of Matthew 6. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Exegesis number one was saying this is the only article or subject out of the Lord's Prayer that Jesus, is, Jesus emphasizes. He doesn't say, now at the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer that I've taught you as a model of prayer, let me reemphasize the great hallowedness and honor that is due God's name. That would be right, but he doesn't emphasize that. He doesn't say, Oh, little one, let me remind you that you can ask for this day's bread and just like he provided daily manna day after day for the the, the children of Israel, you're not alone in this world. You You can bring your needs, even your wants, and he hears your asking. But Jesus didn't emphasize that. What he repeats and emphasizes, and I understood that to be true, In exegesis, if something's mentioned twice, if it's mentioned three times, Peter denied him three times. And three times Jesus asked him, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I'm getting it, Lord. Obedience is based on love. When there's an emphasis of something on Scripture... It's because we're apt to forget or we're apt to minimize the importance of it. There's a, it's an exclamation mark with a yellow highlighter on it. I got that on the first day of my salvation. I understood that. And I understood that in exegesis that I couldn't simply say that this is, this is to apply to others, but this must apply to me. I did not have a good relationship with my father and my mother. I noticed that uh, yesterday I was reading something. We, Emerson and I were reading a book, a, pup, a puppy book or something, and she was reading the words. She lo- she's learning how to read, so she loves to, to point to the words and to read them. And one of the, the sentences of this little puppy said something about it It hated something. You know, it hated baths. That's what it was. It says, I, I hate baths. And so she says, I, I can't say that word. Don't like baths. Well, I hated my mother. I hated her. I mean, I, I believe that I hated her at that time so much that if God had chosen to remove her, I wouldn't have shed a tear. Can I confess that to you? 
before I knew Christ, I would have never been able to forgive my mother of what I felt to be abuses in my life. As I rose to stand on my feet off of my knees, I, I bore the weight of that condition. Father, forgive me of my debts. Oh, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. I've got to forgive my debtors. I've got to forgive my mother. I've got to forgive my father. I've got to forgive other people in my life. And that means that I not simply do it, in this case, that I do it mentally or that I do it from a distance. It meant a face-to-face confrontation conversation. But let me tell you something else that happened as we is I want to show you an example of this at work in Matthew 18. Something else happened to me as I stood on my feet, faced with this call to experience my forgiveness by God, but now to experience being the forgiver of others. I didn't take that down. I didn't take that as a law at work. I didn't hear, go forgive others as a command. Bear with me, this is important. I think if I had heard that as a command, then my forgiveness of my mother would have looked like something like this. Mom, I've become a Christian. And as a Christian, I'm supposed to forgive you. Um, You know that you really screwed up a lot. And... um, I think you're, you, you just totally messed with my head with some things. But you know what? I'm a Christian, so I forgive you. There. It would have sounded so self-righteous. And I would have just done it dutifully. There would have been none of the Ephesians' call of speaking the truth in love. It would have just been truth. So I didn't see it as a command. Here's how I saw it. I saw it as confirmation that I was a Christian. I didn't have, I didn't have a great sign. I didn't have a great, um, I, I wasn't flooded with, with emotions at, at the point of my conversion and being born again. I didn't have some great miracle that happened. I didn't, I didn't feel like, man, God is thick in the room and He's talking and there's fire I didn't have that moment. But I had this as confirmation. If, if, if he really has forgiven me, then it's confirmation by a choice of my will, not moved by emotion. It becomes a choice of my will to forgive someone. And if I'm going to forgive my mom, The Lord must be real. And the Lord must be real and active and at work to lead me. Or I could not do it out of emotion and feeling because I didn't feel like it. But if I followed him in that, just like he was with me to forgive me of my sins, he'd be with me as the forgiver of other sins. And to me, that was a great badge of confirmation that if I can forgive you, the Lord is real. 
And the Lord really has forgiven me. But the contra is true too. If you find it tough to believe, if you find it very, very difficult to forgive someone right now, at that point, you're finding it tough to believe that you're forgiven. Follow the, follow the string. Follow the string. You may say, no, no, no. I know. I believe the Bible. It says that I'm forgiven. All I've had to do is, is lay my debt before the Lord and ask for Him to forgive me. And Jesus has paid that debt. To the degree that that is real, then that will be evidenced by the reality of you forgiving other people. Well, Chris has given me an amen. So that's the sermon. I hope you're ready to come to the table where we acknowledge and celebrate that Jesus is paying our debt is real and it strengthens us physically. That bread and this wine will strengthen you mystically, physically to actually go as we leave the doors of worship this morning to make a phone call, to set up a coffee, to go and meet someone and to confront them either ask for forgiveness or to bestow forgiveness. Now, that's the sin, but I want to show you an example this morning that Jesus gives us in Matthew 18. Now, Matthew 18 is the fourth of five sermons that Jesus gave. It's the fourth of five sermons that Jesus gave. Now, his sermons are a whole lot shorter than mine, but he was Jesus. He could pull it off. But in Matthew 18, he begins by answering a question. In Matthew 18, 21, Peter asks Jesus a question. And it's a question that we need to ask ourselves and to answer this morning. Peter asked Jesus, because Jesus has been talking about forgiveness He's been talking in Matthew 18 about forgiveness and saying, here's what you do if your brother sins against you. You go to him one-on-one. And if he doesn't see reason, if you're not able to be reconciled in your relationship, take another brother or another sister with you. Maybe you're missing something. Maybe they're missing something that a third party can help you both. But the goal is reconciliation. And Peter raises his hand. Ooh, ooh, hey, how many times, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Now, this is real impactful sin. As many as seven times. He offers a very noble, virtuous suggestion. The Pharisees said to their worshipers and their congregation that you're only required to forgive someone three times. Now, think about it. Think about someone has been critical of you to the point that it's slanderous. Whether it's a a neighbor, a workmate, schoolmate, someone in your family, one time, two times, three times, three strikes, they're out. By and large, I've found that to be the practice of people. When I talk to them about 
reconciling in a relationship. It's like, I went, I went, I went, no more. Well, Peter is very noble. He, he kind of doubles it. How about seven times, Jesus? Woohoo! Seven times. I mean, think about seven times meeting with someone. Seven times, I forgive you. 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 And Jesus, Jesus answers this and says, as many as, he says, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. And then, beginning with verse 23 and 24, he offers to us an example. And this example is going to show us and interpret what he means by forgiving someone seven times 70, which is, an, it's, it's basically an exaggeration to say, as many times as you're offended, that's as many times as you forgive. It's an infinite number. He's saying there's no end to forgiving people. It never stops. Just like your being offended never stops. Trace this back. I've got to jump off here. Trace this back. Don't lose. This is, this is not, this is like the, the right wing of the airplane. Which wing of the airplane is the most important? We got any pilots? Ed. Where's Ed? Right there. There's Ed. Ed, which wing of the airport, airplane is the most important? They're equally important. So what he's saying is, look, to the degree that you're offended, to the same degree you forgive. It never stops. So horizontally, every time I'm offended, it's an opportunity to forgive. What about vertically? This is the other wing. Father, forgive me my debts. How many times has he forgiven you? Well, I tell you, with me... Repentance has become a way of life because of, my, because of my life. How many times, he's saying, as many times as Jesus forgives our sins, as God forgives our sins, be like that, never ending. So he tells a parable. And he shows us in this parable the instance of a person's sin, the cost of of that sin and the grace that was applied. Matthew 23 and 24. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, I went in, my major was psychology. I went to seminary originally thinking that I would be trained as a Christian counselor, but then there was this class called homiletics where you give a practice sermon. And because I like to talk a lot, and because I always had a, already had a growing interest in exegesis, I said, this is the groove. This is the track that I'm made for right here is to preach. You know, to be the only one that gets to talk in class was always fun for me. And so I don't do math. So somebody with a calculator, literally, let's do a little math exercise. This guy is standing before a king, a king over a kingdom. And he owes 10,000 talents. When the account is being settled, he owes 10,000 talents. Now, a footnote in your Bible says that a talent is 20 years wages. Already, 
this is going to be a math problem. One talent is 20 years wages. All right, pull out your iPhone or a calculator. Let's say that a common laborer, a year's wages is $30,000. $30,000 a year. So 20 years at $30,000 a year is how much? 600000 Okay. Now multiply that times 10000 He says he owes 10. That's one talent. One talent is 600000 What's he doing here? I mean, now we're talking about this is how much money is that? 10,000 times 600,000. Six billion, six billion dollars. Now, I think when Jesus' hearers heard this, they would not have anyone, including Solomon, that they could say, this is a real king in a real kingdom. They understood, as he's telling this as a parable to illustrate in the Lord's Prayer earlier, much earlier, and also with his command as to how we're to meet our brothers who have sinned against us and how we're to be toward them. They understand that he's talking about something that is a God of godly proportions. They would understand. They would understand that he was talking about their debt before the true king. God Himself, and that it is a debt of such vastness that it could never, never within any stretch of the imagination be paid. The billions, the six billion that would be owed would be an equivalent to this massive, massive debt that we owe, where we have not honored God as our Creator or our rightful king. Where we have, like spiritual adulterers, we've gone to other gods. Or if we are like orphans, we've, we've left our sonship or our daughtership to just serve our own plans and our own devices rather than follow Him. And on top of that, not only have we sinned against God by going our own way, Going our own way rather than following the Lord, our God, our Maker. We've sinned horizontally against one another. We owe an extreme debt. I can't dwell on this anymore. But again, if you're struggling to forgive someone, revisit the cross. And look at the price that was paid for you. And it cost a man a painful, humiliating, uh, you know, torturous death for your sins. It's, our sins are paid for at a great cost because they're at a, such a, a, a huge debt. There's such an amount of them. We need to see sin as God sees sin. He stands before the king. And in verse 25, he's found that he could not pay. So originally, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had, and that payment of the debt be made. 
Now, that's not cruel and unusual punishment. That wouldn't be like slavery as we in the South and in the West understood slavery. This would be more like indentured servitude until he could pay the debt, which we would never pay. But it would be a life, as it were, of under, he's no longer the master, but he's going to be in bondage to someone else. Matthew 18, verses 26 through 27, shows us his reaction. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And again, he couldn't. There's no way that he could do it. It's interesting that he doesn't appeal to the emotions of the king. But we see the king's emotions and feeling. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. I, uh, I find it interesting. And when I read this, I go back and I think about the face of that king. I think about, here's the king... He's not a face toward this servant that has this huge debt. He's not a king who looks at him with anger or to provoke fear. When he hears him saying, hey, listen, I'll pay it back. I'll do it. I'll do it myself. He doesn't go, you don't know. You're a moron. You can't pay this back. He doesn't judge him as an idiot. He sees the scramble. But he sees this man's fear, he sees the debt, and his heart, this king's heart, our king's heart, is moved with pity and a desire, not a reluctance, to forgive the debt. Look and see the grace of this king. Forgiveness, forgiveness comes at a cost. Forgiveness means that you're willing to take the loss and wipe out the balance that is owed. Someone has to pay the debt. Either they have to pay the debt, this servant. Somebody else has to intervene and intercede and pay the debt, like Christ intervened between us and God. Or the king must pay the debt. And in this case, the king ate it. He took a loss. He wrote it off. And he didn't say, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to sell your wife and kids. Or I'm going to do this, maybe. There was no ifs, ands, or buts about it. So we would think that he's not going to revisit it. Secondly, Jesus goes on, and he now talks about forgiving debtors. See, this man, he is the first wing of the airplane His debts are now forgiven by a king. But will he show that he really has experienced the forgiveness of his sins or debt by evidencing that he is not only forgiven, but he's a forgiver? Verses 28 and 29. That same servant went out. He found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. Let me ask you a question. 
what would crippling debt look like? So this man's debt, this man's debt is not in the billions. This man's debt is much, much smaller. It's probably about a thousand to twelve hundred dollars hours. It said that he owed him a thousand denarii. A denarii is a day's wages. Let's say that a, a, a man is a, a craftsman. Let's say that he makes minimally a hundred dollars a day. So this man owes a much smaller debt, a thousand versus the billion, but it's still a crippling debt. It's still a hardship. It's, it's severe. Okay. We can talk afterwards. Um, I can't imagine, but there may be some. Uh, there are loads, there are going to be loads of questions. Because some of you are saying, look, I know that you're talking to the majority of the people in the room that the people that you're asking and challenging them to go this week and have a conversation with and grant them forgiveness, they owe small debts. I've got people that have big debts to me. It could be an abusive father. It could be sexually abuse. It could be murder. It could be a crime of injustice. It could be someone could say, I was falsely imprisoned because of this. That's a bit, no, that's in the category of crippling debt. That's what this small debt is. Don't excuse it. Because what you're doing is if you look at that and you say, hey, I'm not like that wicked servant who had a great debt forgiven. I forgive people all the time. How do you forgive people who have a crippling debt towards you? In 2006, Charles Robert went into an Amish schoolhouse and there, with approximately 30 students, he dismissed the teachers. He dismissed all the boys in the class. He dismissed a number of girls. But he killed three of them. And then he killed himself. That Amish community reacted in such a way that Malcolm Gladwell would later say that God used that to cause him to return to his own Christian roots. The Amish community not only went and grieved with the family of the three girls that were slain, but they went to Charles Roberts' widow and they ministered to her. They took her food. That's what you do when someone dies. You carry a covered dish. They carried her food. And then as she faced an inability to pay her utility bills and her rent, they began to take up those bills for her. The world was amazed to see that. And then we saw it here with Mother Emmanuel as a congregation 
where they would completely diffuse the rising anger over these horrendous nine killings by forgiving the perpetrator. Where does that come from? It's fueled only by an experience that we too are sinners. And there's no difference in sins. And that's certainly a heinous sin and crime. But the ability to forgive was not natural to them. It was a supernatural um, event in that God was working through them and will work through us to change our heart. The Pharisee can't forgive. He doesn't have any power to forgive. But with a new heart and a heart sensitive to our own forgiveness, we can forgive even crippling debt. Now we have three excuses Three excuses for not forgiving someone. Number one, if I forgive this person, they will then take advantage of me, abuse me, and control me. Quite the opposite is true. If you, here's what you're facing. If you do not forgive, if you don't forgive, there is a seed. We all have within our heart the seeds of bitterness. You begin, if you don't forgive another person, you begin to think about them. You brood over that. You begin to water that seed and it grows into a plant of bitterness. Someone once said that an unforgiving, bitter attitude toward other people is like drinking poison expecting it to kill our enemy. It works on our heart. You don't want to forgive someone because you don't want the, the, the abuse to continue. You don't want them to have any control over you. Well, they do control you because they make you bitter. They make you gossip. They make you slander. They make you think about them. They make you resent them. They're controlling you. Forgiveness will nip that control of you in the bud. If I forgive, I'm excusing the sin. I'm ignoring the evil committed against me. No, again, the opposite is true. You're actually, in confronting another person with their sin against you, you're turning the light on. And I pray that it's not a heat lamp. That it's out of Ephesians where we learn to speak the truth in love. That's got to be present. You know, elsewhere, earlier, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had talked about in Matthew 7, I believe it is, that, um, or not, not, uh, not Sermon on the Mount, but in Matthew 7, he talks about the log in our own eye. We need to know that when I meet with another person to encourage them to receive, to say, you've hurt me, you've offended me, you've sinned against me, I feel the impact of your sin against me, But you know, let's start with my sin. I've got to believe that my sin is is present. I've got to believe that I've got a log in my eye before I start dealing with your, your speck. So it's acknowledging not only another person's by bringing it into the light, but by bringing my sin into the light as well. We're acknowledging it. We're turning a light on it. And it's another conversation But you don't have to forget it. We're not asking you to to go into some kind of denial and 
and strike up a close, intimate relationship from this point when you've been terribly, terribly hurt. But you must forgive. Forgetting is a different situation. Though I have found in time that where there is true forgiveness, we do forget. Finally, if I forgive, this person will become more deeply entrenched in their sin. Um, if, you, if you look, and I, I won't take the time to go there this morning, but if you look in the Bible at those examples, the extreme examples of where someone is being sinned against, viciously abused, and they grant forgiveness that in time, that is a fertile, fertile environment for God to work for the salvation of their offenders. Case in point, Stephen. In Acts 22, as a part of his testimony, the, now the Apostle Paul says that at one point, he was a persecutor of people of the way. And he said, at one point, I was there supervising, overseeing the execution of Stephen, the first martyr of the church. And I was there, and I was approving of the execution that I had set into place. I was overseeing it, and then I just kind of watched their clothes while they had at him with stones. Back to Acts uh, 7, where we find Stephen at the point that they're picking up stones and hurling them to him. It says, Stephen looked to heaven, and in looking to heaven saw Christ standing for him. He knew that the good man at God's right side was intervening for him just like he had interceded to pardon him of all of his debts. And with that, he now looks, after looking at Christ and seeing the forgiveness of his sins, he looks horizontally at the stones still coming at him, and he says, and I forgive all of you. God do not hold this against him. Saul, later Paul, would have heard it. It would have been planted. He had to grasp that nobody can forgive another person. At the point of their even being murdered, Christ, another case in the point on the cross, Lord, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Nobody can do that except God be at work. And in forgiving another person, we release our own self from bitterness. Matthew 18, verse 30. This one refused to forgive. Forgiven, he refuses to forgive another person. And so he threw him into prison until he should pay his debt. In Matthew 18, verses 31, 32, and 34, word gets back to the king. The master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And in anger, 
his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. We've got a choice. If we don't, if we don't go and forgive those that have offended or sinned against us, or if we refuse, we refuse to forgive them. Preacher, you don't know. You don't have any idea in your preacher's world how much they have hurt me. You don't know how crippling this has been. You don't know the severity of it. You don't know the repetitious of it. If I forgive them, they just keep on doing it. You just don't understand. You will find yourself in jail. You will find yourself in bondage. You will find yourself facing that word for jailers is tormentors or torturers. It will torture you. It will kill your heart. Jesus invites us to be merciful as our Father in heaven is merciful. Two things. Uh, I want you to consider that there are offenses that we'll put in the category of misdemeanors. And those, those things can be, uh, those misdemeanors, they can be forgiven as long as they can be overlooked. Let me give you an example. There are people that, because I'm the preacher, there are people that say critical things about me, about the ministry, about Two Rivers, all the time. And they, they're hurtful. They hurt. But so many of them I put in the category of misdemeanors because I can forgive them, I can overlook them, not all of them. Some of them need to definitely be addressed. But there's so many of them, I'm like, they, they just don't know everything that's involved. Or they're so hurting right now, they're just speaking out of pain. There's so many offenses that we can forgive, that doesn't require an encounter necessarily. But if you can't overlook it, if it's there, you need to go. And that's what you need to do. Is you need to not avoid the confrontation, but you need to set up an opportunity for a conversation, a loving conversation to take place. Number two, we want your family, and if you're a single, you're a family. Um, but we want each family unit at Two Rivers to get uh, this uh, guide to peacemaking. Ken Sandy uh, has written a book called The Peacemaker that from the very start of Two Rivers, we have incorporated in the life of our church. Where forgiveness thrives in a church, that church thrives. Because we know how to deal with conflict. We know how to love one another as we're loved. We know how to forgive one another as we are forgiven. So if you become a member, this pamphlet is in your membership packet and we go over it. If you become a church officer, we go over it. This pamphlet, again, is in your leadership packet and we go over it again. 
I mention it in the sermon. This sermon has been about peacemaking and the, the energy behind going to forgive other people, coming from a fresh awareness of our own forgiveness. On the back of this guide, uh, there are the four promises of forgiveness. I will not dwell on this incident, meaning I've gotten to a point that I can now overlook it. I will not bring this incident up and use it against them. I won't gossip about a person. I won't slander another person. I will not talk to others about this incident. I will not allow this incident to stand between us. I won't avoid them. I won't go to another church. I won't shop in a different place out of fear of running into them. Um, And it will not hinder our personal relationship. Why? Because forgiveness is for the purpose of being reconciled to one another. Now we're getting ready to come to this table. Elsewhere, Jesus said, before you bring your gifts to the altar, if you're on the outs with a brother or sister, leave your gift in the seat and then go and make peace with your brother, then come back and celebrate the peace with your gift that you have with God. We're going to do it in reverse this morning. Some of you have a name that has come to mind during the time that I've been preaching. Perhaps a couple of times that name has come up. Can I encourage you to believe that that is no accident? That that name is not conjured up because of some guilt that I'm trying to lay on you, but it's actually the work of the Holy Spirit? And the Holy Spirit this morning wants you to meet with that person for the beauty of reconciliation. He's got something in mind. He wants to use you in their life and them and yours. It's important. I want to encourage you to go and make a time to talk with them. And no, a text and an email is not going to cut it. Oh, wow, that's going to be so hard and it's going to be so awkward. Not if you go in love. And consider confessing your own sin first. You'll find things a lot easier after that. And go on the strength of this table this morning. 